It's Robot Chicken Week on the Adult Swim Podcast. Today we're in Stupid Buddy Studios talking to Tom Shepard. He's been the director of Robot Chicken for a couple of years now. Let's see what he has to say. Where are you from? I'm from the wilds of Southern California. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Grew up in the Pasadena area. Uh-huh. You haven't gotten far. I haven't, really, yeah. in, in in every aspect. You've, I looked at your uh, IMDb page. You got yeah. a million credits. It's right? not quite at a million yet, but it's... Pinky it's, in the Brain, Jimmy Neutron, Scooby-Doo, Annoying Orange, and Mike Nichols comes up. Yeah. What's that about? Well, so... Uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, I had worked for a producer named Neil Macklis as a, as a PA for, I don't know, a couple of months. And I was, uh, either fresh, I guess I was a freshman in film school at USC and, uh, they needed, um, an assistant for Mike Nichols. And they asked me if I knew who Mike Nichols was. And I said, no, uh, and they said perfect. You're you're already on is your that way. True, it is ab- absolutely true. And they said, well, have you heard of the Graduate? And I was like, yeah, oh, I love that movie. And they said, well, he directed that. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, though, that's the attitude we need. Mike doesn't like assistants who fawn all over him. He, you know, and you seem to have kind of a, a an annoying attitude. Um, we think you'd be a good fit. And it was uh, it was insane. It was. Uh, it was really a defining experience for me. I didn't think so at the time. I just thought, hey, here's a job, you know, that I can do and get a little bit of money for to help pay for school. And um, Everybody else knew that this was a great job for you, but you. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. defined my entire career. Like, I've, I've, I've kind of been fortunate to stumble into these things that um, I'm not quite aware while I'm doing them of the significance of it. Um, but the, the Nichols thing was, was fantastic. I mean, I, I hit it off with him right away. We, he was just lovely to work for. He did make me cry once. What did he do? Uh, or what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know that he made me cry. Uh, there, there was, there was an incident where the, um, the Teamsters and I love Teamsters. This isn't a Teamster slam. Uh, one of the one of the drivers had moved his uh, Winnebago overnight. We were on the Paramount lot, and they had had to move it to another you know alleyway or somewhere, and they hadn't locked off the toilet um, in the Winnebago. So apparently, um, whatever was in the toilet sloshed up and got all over the carpet. Eventually, I found my way to the head, um, the head of transportation, and I said, "What? What do we do? Mike's trailer smells like shit." And they said, um, "They said, oh, we know about that. We're we're working on it." And I was like, "Well, what happened?" They're like, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it." So, the day goes on, and Mike shows up, and he comes in, and he he takes a whiff, and he's like, "What is going on?" He's like, "I I don't know. <laughs> the transportation's on it. Don't worry about it." All day, people coming in and like smelling it and then scrubbing the floor and then leaving and going, oh, it's cool now. And I'd walk back in, still smelled like shit. Mike would come back from the stages. He'd come in. He'd go, ah, this is terrible. And he'd leave. And so this went on probably like six, seven hours. And then 
midway through the day, probably four o'clock, he comes back in and I can tell the the smell is pretty bad and he's really frustrated with it. And I said, Mike, what do you want me to do? And he and he not very graciously said, I want a goddamn new trailer. Um might have said it in a in a tone you would not expect from him. And he walked out and I I've told this story enough times now that I don't feel embarrassed by it, but I closed the door to his trailer. I was alone in the trailer and I just started sobbing. I just, you know, I was 18. I was just guttural sobs. And I was like, oh, I don't need this. I don't need this. I'm going to quit. <laughs> and then I got myself together and I walked out of the trailer and I stood there and he came back from the stages. And as graciously as he ever did, he gave me a hug and he said, I'm so sorry. That was completely uncalled for. I know it's not your fault. I think I, it was a good lesson, you know, in something. What what project was it? <laughs> it was regarding Henry. Oh, regarding Henry. Okay. Um, and it's also the place where I first really encountered someone uh, who was a massive movie star who wanted to be treated like a normal human being yeah. and treated everyone – Beautifully, and that was Harrison Ford. The first day on set, I was so nervous. I was standing off in the in the wings, and they were doing some, you know, very intense hospital scene. And I think Harrison Ford was like he'd been shot in the head, and he was drooling out of the side of his mouth. And you know, they called called for a break, and I'm standing there with the, guarding the cigarettes and trying to be unobtrusive, and. I look up and Harrison Ford is standing right in front of me and he's and he puts out his hand and he says, hey, I hear you're working for Mike. And I said, oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he said, my name's Harrison and shook my hand. Didn't expect that I knew who he was. Um, wow. Completely unpretentious. Completely. And the rest of the shoot. He was the same way. He wouldn't let anybody drive him in a golf cart. He had a bicycle that he'd take around the lot. Uh, just the. The loveliest man. So you're just, 18, coming out of film school. I was in film school. Seeing all this firsthand. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Why did you go um, to film school? Um, well, I wanted to be an actor. Um, and um, I don't think my parents were real excited about that. Um, I was, you know, like a drama geek in, in high school and as a... A young uh, teenager, I took it upon myself to to get an agent, and um, that upset my parents quite a bit. And I, you know, I saw a little bit of the industry from from that side um, on the occasions that I would get an audition, and then I got my SAG card when I was fifteen, I think. What uh, were you casting? It was a movie called Zombie High. Um, it was a interesting, weird. Um, teen zombie movie about a prep school that is where the teachers are turning the students into zombies. I think they're extracting a serum from their brains right. so that they can stay young or stay alive. But the the most interesting thing about it was the cast, because um, Paul Feig was in the cast uh, from Freaks wow. and Geeks and sure. everything else. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks and Robot Chicken now. Um, Virginia Madsen, uh, 
think wow, an all-star cast. Yeah, and then I before I played, they were, I played no. like a random student. I think I had two lines, one of which made it into the film. And is it available? Is it on YouTube? It is. Can we link to it? It is available. You could. I'll, I'll find. I can find the scene that I'm yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's fun. So, so then, um, I guess I sort of felt, you know, as I was seeing all this, I, I I probably came to this myself. My friends and I used to make films. You know, kind of the classic. You know, we had Super Eight cameras and we'd make little short films. And and as I was looking towards college, I thought, well, um, probably part of it was the pressure from my parents to have the fallback career. <laughs> and for some reason, I thought filmmaking was a fallback right. career to being Not an law actor. law school or... So I applied to a bunch of um, schools with film programs, and I got into USC. Um, and it seemed like a no-brainer to me that I should go. What do you tell people that you do now? Uh, in terms of career? In terms of robot chicken. Well, Or in terms of career. Well, I don't I'm, know. I direct robot chicken. Uh, I also write it, um, but I mainly direct it. Yeah. Explain what that means to direct Robot Chicken to the to the person who knows nothing about animation. Um, well, just like I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of any film project or any television project, uh, it entails everything that you would think goes into that: um, directing actors in terms of animated projects, um, taking what's on the page getting it into um, a storyboard form, which we then turn into what we call an animatic, um, which is the the voices that I also direct with Seth and Matt. Um, we marry that into a storyboard, uh, into an animatic, uh, which gives us the timing of the episode. Um, and then we use that as the roadmap uh, when we're on the sound stages. Um, directing the animators to give us the performances from the puppets on Robot Chicken. What is the value then in stop motion? I don't know. It's, I mean, every, I've worked in many forms of animation and they all seem equally hard. I think the, the scariest thing about stop motion is that you, you don't get to in traditionally on a 2d show or a CG show, at least here in Los Angeles, you basically prep the entire show and then you ship it off to a, an overseas studio to do the actual animation. Um, and so it kind of gets out of your hair for a while and then you it comes back and you have to call for retakes and things like that. But here it's it's just all very hands-on from beginning to end. So I guess that's... That's the scariest thing about it, but it's also, to me, the coolest thing about it. Is in other words, you can't redo stuff as easily. No, you no. You have to know we, well in advance what you're doing. And we try to never redo stuff on the show just because it's it's so labor-intensive to produce just a single shot um, that we, you know, we'll rarely uh, ask an animator to redo a shot. Two very specific types of directing, directing the animation and then directing the voice acting. right. Are those two sides of the brain? Not two really. Sides I think of the brain? I think they all go hand in hand. You know, they're they're pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean the the one thing that I the one thing I always say to the animators um, that I think they're sick of hearing is none of the characters that they're animating 
know that they're in a comedy. Every single character on Robot Chicken is living a drama. And it's funny to us. The writing's funny. Um, what they're saying is funny. What they're experiencing is absurd. But they're not mugging to camera. They're not doing big, dumb, stupid walks. Um, Play it straight. They're playing it straight. And for the most part, I'm sure someone's going to say, what about this sketch? Uh, I'm sure there are are times when we we go off the rails a little bit and, and do wink at the camera. And um, But for the most part, the majority of the show, at least since I've been directing it, we always play it straight. Walk us through your arrival here. So be, let's say between cleaning out uh, Mike Nichols' shit trailer to yeah. here. <laughs> Link that up. Okay, well... Uh, I had been writing with uh, with various uh, partners while I was in school. A friend and I had written a, a raunchy "I Was a Teenage Frankenstein" live action comedy called Franken Dude, and we got lots of meetings. Lots of people would read it. There were, I mean, it, this was probably a time when people weren't really buying movies about. Frankenstein teenagers with giant dicks. Um, so that probably worked against us, but... Um, but there might have been one. Lo- lots, all we needed was one. Yeah. And then the script fell into the hands of um, a guy named Tom Ruger and a guy named Peter Hastings at Warner Brothers Animation. And um, our we had an agent at the time, and, and he said, do you guys know Animaniacs? And we're like, no, what's that? And so he told us a little bit, and he said, well... They have this show called uh, Pinky and the Brain. They're um, they're looking for writers. Do you guys want to go in and meet with them? And we're like, sure. It's a job. Yeah, that sounds great. And some somehow in that meeting, I think, yeah, we we pitched, well, does Brain have a nemesis? And they're like, not really. And was, one of us said, well, what if his nemesis was a genetically altered hamster? And they went, that's it. And uh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And we had an assignment, basically. So wow. that script became uh, the origin of Snowball. It was Brain's nemesis on the show, voiced by Roddy McDowell. So then I stayed there for five or six years, um, working on a lot of different things. Then there was a regime change, change uh, bounced out of there. I was at Cartoon Network for a while. Uh, we're going to show called My Gym Partner's a Monkey. Um, that uh, Tim and Julie Cahill created. Great people, great, funny, fun show. Uh, then I went to Nickelodeon and worked on Back at the Barnyard, um, which was um, based on a movie that Steve Odekirk made. Right. And while I was working there, um, I worked with a director named Todd Grimes, and we became friends and fans of each other's work. And then I got a call from him saying, hey, I'm going to be directing this show for Lucasfilm. And they're looking for writers. Can I you know, give them your name? And I was like, yeah, what, what is it? He's like, I'm not allowed to say. So Lucasfilm. So I went. Uh, I got called in. I had a meeting uh, with Seth and Matt. Uh, this, they were doing a show called Star Wars I think it was called Star Wars Squishies at the time, but it was a Star Wars show. And uh, I met with them once, I think for the head writer job. 
And then I never heard from them again. And then a year later, they called me in uh, again and said they were they were looking for more writers. And um, by then, I think it was called Star Wars Detours. And would I be interested in flying up to Lucasfilm for two or three weeks and breaking stories with George Lucas? Um, again, fall, just fall, stumbling my way into what was your response to into that? these jobs? Like, uh, yeah, he's okay. No, I. Uh, I think I crapped my pants. So I so that's where I met Seth and Matt and, um, and George and George. We and I worked with them on um, detours off and on for a couple of years. And then how does that come to to work with George? What does that mean? Does that mean you're sitting at a uh, table with George bouncing around ideas? Yeah, like, criticizing each other's we, ideas. It was the most surreal. Thing we we would come in uh, nine a.m. up at Skywalker Ranch and uh, we'd break stories in the morning. We'd pitch we sorry we'd pitch stories storylines for this show uh, in the morning, and George would be there, not just listening to pitches, but actively pitching with the group and taking notes from the group and getting shut down by the collective group and it, and and school mostly the coolest thing was just schooling us in the minutia of Star Wars and wow. uh all kinds of things that we we had lent all this importance to you know he would just undercut with no no that's like I remember saying something about uh we were talking about the Gamorian guards from from uh, Jabba's palace, and and I said something like, "Hey, I, George, I always wondered: Are the Ugnots, which from the Cloud City, the guys who rip apart the droids, the little tiny pig guys, is like, are, they, are they any relation to the to the Gamorrean guards? Because I I I always thought they were." And he goes, "Ah, oh, no, it's just bad makeup." <laughs> <laughs> And you'd see him be his pitch be shut down. Oh yeah, I remember one time he, he was enthusiastically pitching something, and then the room was quiet. And he goes, oh, "Okay, I know how this works. I'm never going to bring this up again." <laughs> and it was so great because it was just it embodied for all of us. I think we all just felt this like loving kinship, and you know this man who we all revered and and loved was just as insecure about pitching his ideas as any of the rest of us and wow. it was it was kind of beautiful yeah a real humanity to it after yeah. all so i did that uh and then i i had sold uh annoying orange which i co-created with the guy who created the the web series dane bodeheimer um to cartoon network and so i had to go do that um and i wasn't sure how involved I was going to be in that. Um, and so I started freelancing writing on Robot Chicken. And then Annoying Orange consumed my life. Um, and I sort of, I don't know, you hear all these stories about people who create shows and think that they can just create them and then get a check. And I felt like what Dane and I had created was spiraling out of control without either of us being there full time. So I just wedged myself into the show and said, I'm I'm in charge now. What would an example have been? <laughs> I'm the captain. I'm the captain now. 
Well, I don't want to name a lot of names. Yeah. Uh, they were all really good good people. It was just a it was a very odd time and an odd project because I think coming out of the world of YouTube, this sort of homegrown um, world of guys making videos out of their basements, which is basically what Dane had been doing for three or four years, um, thinking that they could just translate that to to cable or network television um, in the same manner, you know, but using technicians and professionals from within the animation communities. Um, it was just a, it was a weird mashup initially. And we had some, some people on the side of the the company financing the show who weren't quite in line. They, they had never produced a show like this before. And so there was a lot of fighting over resources and what, what I felt we actually needed to put into the show um, initially wasn't quite there. Um, so it was a little bit of a fight to get them to come around to, hey, we, this is going on Cartoon Network. This needs a certain level of professionalism that, you know, no diss against what people are doing for $500 out of their basement. We can't make the show for that. We we have to do this on a professional level and we have to use SAG actors and we, you know, we've we've got to bring this up a notch. Um, and to their credit, they they stepped up, and um, we had a really solid run. And you know, was, I'm proud of that show. It was the the first of its kind to make that leap from YouTube to to regular cable television. Yeah, a sign of things to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was yeah, it was a great experience. We we had a ton of fun making the show, and I think you know. It sort of became infectious. We we started out, you know, struggling a little bit to get guest stars on the show. And then something happened season two where the floodgates just suddenly opened. And I remember we got Dave Grohl to be on the show. It turned out his daughter was a massive fan. And he came in. He played himself uh, in a live action thing. And then he came in and did voices and then he said, I want to be a regular on the show. I'm like, wow. That's that's cool. And then we got Olivia Wilde. And I remember saying, why did you want to do this? And she said, I was talking to Dave Grohl. He said he had a great time. Um, that was that. Then David Cross showed up. And then Rain Wilson showed up. And then Danny Trejo showed up. And Eddie Izzard. And like, it was just this cavalcade of people. You know, I, I'm used to going out to actors for the shows I work on. And, you know, nine times out of ten, you get a, eh, uh, no, pass. Or I'm busy. Yeah. You know, most of these shows pay scale. Right. So, or all of them do. Here's $900. <laughs> yeah. 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 For, you know, an hour's work. Yeah. And, you know, if someone has a connection, they'll sometimes say yes. But usually it's just like, oh, no, pass. Try me next year. Yeah. But this was, this felt like it was on the level of... um like Yo Gabba Gabba, like right. when people were just showing up to do that show. You know, we did a we did a holiday special, and I just pie in the sky wrote in uh, I wrote in parts for Alice Cooper, um, Weird Al, um, I think Britney Spears, uh, and Brett Michaels of Poison. Wow! And it was like a like a Muppet Show type holiday special where there are all these like too too many guest stars there. They don't have time to get them all on the air. And 
lo and behold, literally every single person said yes except Britney, Britney Spears. Um, so we did a we did a holiday special with Alice Cooper, Brett Michaels, and Weird Al. Wow, <laughs> that's wild. So Annoying Orange uh, uh, went away through some behind the scenes uh, unfortunate incidents uh-huh. that ended up with uh, the forty episode third season order um, turning into a zero episode wow. third season order. That's a tremendous loss. Uh, yeah, had, had you been banking on it? No, but had you bought yourself we had a been, helicopter? No, 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 <laughs> no. I had made that mistake on <laughs> when I was at Nickelodeon on back at the barnyard. Um, I, uh, our executive on the show had told us um, the writers, "You guys are golden. Uh, I can't see this show not getting picked up for another season." And um, I was in the market for a new car. And I was up in Santa Barbara, and I stopped. <laughs> I feel sound like such an asshole. I was stopped by the the Porsche dealership, and they were having closeouts on the 2008 year end models. And I, <laughs> spur of the moment, I bought a Porsche Cayman. Way more money than I could afford, but I was like, I've got a, I got this good job at Nickelodeon for a year, so I bought the car, which I still drive. By the way, I've had it for 11 years now, so it actually worked out. But I came back the next week. I think it was a week later, and the same executive came in. He's like, ah, i got some some bad news for you guys. Uh, yeah, network's not, not picking up the show. A so week later. <laughs> it was like a week later. Um, Holy shit. But it was, it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> That's rough. I don't know what that question was that led, led to my... Uh, well, we were the 40-episode order that went away, mm. and then uh, yeah, so I wasn't, you're high and dry. I wasn't banking on that, uh-huh. and then um, that coincided with uh, Zeb Wells leaving directing Robot Chicken to go work on uh, his own show, Super Mansion. So they needed a director on Robot Chicken, um, and they asked if I was interested, and I was – yeah, I was definitely interested. Yeah, because by then the show had been up and going – for a while. Yeah, I think it was in uh, season seven had just been finished. Uh-huh. So they were le- going into season eight. Um, so I lobbied pretty hard to get the job. Yeah. So what is your, what's your day like now? Is it, a, is, it, is it a crazy long day? Is it nine to five? What's it like? Uh, it's... W- it depends which part of the season. When we're when we start writing the show, um, the first couple of months we we write the show for six months. Mm-hmm. The first two months, I'm still in the writers' room writing um, and pitching sketches. Yeah. Um, and then at that two month mark, um, I leave the writers' room to start prepping the scripts that we have and start getting ready for production, which will happen four months, three or four months later. Um, And then I'm still going in the writer's room every day, um, not to pitch anymore, but to, you know, to read the scripts and to vote on sketches and talk about production concerns, maybe asking, begging to stop writing so many sketches uh, about that movie 300 because it's very difficult to produce sketches with thousands of puppets. Um, once we're in production, I'm usually here from about 8 a.m. till 7 every night. Um, 
from nine till six we're shooting. So people might not understand those practicalities of something like 300 when you have a traditional 2D animation. It's just another drawing. Yeah. But in this, it's a whole new physical world that you've got to build. Yes. Yes. And you go in there and you see these scripts come in and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. And you and you ruin people's dreams. Well, no, I mean, just just like my my weird uh, notion that this is a drama. Um, I also try because I'm coming at it from being a writer originally. I don't want to curtail anyone's vision uh, in the writer's room. So I will generally initially say, in in my opinion, write whatever you want. We'll figure out how to make it. Um, when we get to final scripts, um, when we're doing the final punch-up phase uh, on the scripts, I'll get in there and I'll, I'll point out very specific things that are difficult. Or, you know, if there's a, a character that shows up, there's a, you know, a deformed mutant giant with wings that shows up for literally one shot, um, you know, we'll try to come up with another solution than spending thousands of dollars and man hours building one puppet that you're only going to see for three seconds. Do you remember what some of the more expensive ideas uh, um, have, have been? Odd, oddly, this season we did – and it, expensive in terms of can, – can be a lot of things. It could be the number of sets. It could be – uh, the number of puppets, the number of very specific yeah. puppets, or it could just be how long it takes to shoot yeah. a sketch. Ambitious, and, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And this season, we did a we did a sketch based on the old show Pete and Pete. And from the looks of it, it looks like it's nothing. It's a bunch of characters saying, I'm Pete, over and over and over for about two and a half minutes. But it is hundreds of characters, and it is... When we storyboarded it and finished it in the animatic, I think it was like close to 50 shots for one sketch, which is insane. Um, we de- we generally do uh, – in one 11-minute episode of Robot Chicken, we average around 120 shots per episode. 120 shots. And, and explain what a, sh- what a shot is. A shot is one camera setup. So, you know, a close-up of Harrison Ford uh, reacting – to seeing the Holy Grail, that's one shot. Then turning the camera around and looking at the Holy Grail, that's another So 120 shot. shots per episode. Some episodes have far more and some have a little bit less. Yeah. So one sketch with 50 shots, but but it also has sort of this very epic cinema quality to it. So, so the camera is not very stationary. It's moving all the time, which adds another layer of... Uh, of production difficulty um, to each shot because we have to either manually move the camera within each shot or we have to um, use motion control, which is basically a, for lack of a better term, a robotic uh, camera move. Um, And so this this one sketch, uh, I think it took us, we started shooting it our entire production schedule this season was six months from beginning to end. We started shooting it, I think, three months into the schedule, and it was the last shot. The last shot of the season was from this sketch. And how long is the sketch? I think the sketch is around two minutes. Wow. Yeah. A lot of times we'll put an animator on one sketch, and they'll they'll animate the entire sketch. And the, it's, it's good for them. It gives them ownership of it. Um, with this sketch... 
Uh, and it's a great sketch. I'm really happy with it. But it's the working. animators would be on it for about three shots, and they would start. You could see it. Their their eyes were darting around, and they were starting to lose their minds. So I just cycle people in, and they'd all have to do their duty on on the Pete and Pete sketch. How have how has the show grown then for you? I, I guess physically, it's just gotten more animators, more sets, and and also I'd imagine the nature of the topics has grown up. Or maybe not grown up, but grown younger? I don't know. How's yeah, that I, I mean, that's the biggest one to me. I, I think production-wise, it's it's still kind of the same beast. We've we've gotten a little bit better year to year making the show. We're, we're a little bit more efficient. Um, I think the the assets look better now. The, um, you know, the sets and the puppets, all, you know, the quality increases incrementally uh, every season. And... Um, just, I mean, if you put season one against season ten, it's like you're watching a show from an alien planet and something from today. But uh, and you know, they're still just as charming and weird. Do you have go tos that you that you prefer? Um, I mean, most of my go tos don't usually work in the room. So, um, like what? Well, like I I like try to write a lot of David Lynch sketches. <laughs> And then I I later found out most writers in the room have never seen a David Lynch movie. Wow. Um I had a I had a sketch uh called Eraserhead Baby Grows Up and it was exactly that it was the baby from Eraserhead and we see him grow up and go to college and he's still swaddled in his little swaddling yeah. and um he has a family. And I it got all the way through to script and then we d- we have this like horrific round when we our scripts are always too long and everybody gets a secret vote. At the end of the day, you send in your votes of what you want to cut to try to get the scripts down to the length they need to be. And suddenly my Eraserhead Baby Grows, grows Up sketch got the axe from every single person in the room except me. It's unanimous. Yeah. And I... <laughs> I came in. And I was like, "What the fuck is wrong with you guys? You loved this." And somebody, I think it was Tom Root, said, "Well, I got to admit, I've never seen a racer head, but I thought that baby looked funny. <laughs> I didn't understand the sketch." Was there a moment like, and uh, in, in the time that you've been here, like what happened with the annoying orange when the floodgates of celebrities opened up and people were actively seeking to be on the show? Um, I mean, I, it seems like it's that way on this show all the time. Yeah. Um, and we'll still like, we'll still shoot for, you know, Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford and guys like that. And, you know, most of the time we can't even get past their agents, but occasionally like some of the, some of the people who come in are, you know, mind blowing and who come back, you know, are mind blowing. Um, and you direct them. Yeah. Do you find yourself feeling strange to be directing some of these big names? Uh, not usually, but I I think the cat's out of the bag on this one. So I think I'm allowed to say that we had David Lynch on the show this season. Wow. And Seth and I went to his house to direct him in his home studio. And I was so happy Seth was there because... I've never become so tongue-tied around anyone. Um, I just, you know, 
I just love David Lynch so much, and I love his work. Every everything that he does, yeah. every, his photography, his his music, um, and it was just I've never. I, I've never freaked out about somebody like that. So what was uh, that like? You and Seth get in the car and drive over to his house? We went over. Yeah, we went over to his house. Um, during the day, at night? Like, it was in, during the day. Uh-huh. Uh, we sat in the studio with his assistant and one of his producers and waited for him. And I assume he was meditating. Was he uh, not prompt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was a couple minutes. Might have been a couple minutes late. Yeah. Um, but came in and was just as gracious as could be. And... Um, just kept asking us what we wanted from him and uh, um, went into the booth and and we proceeded to ask David Lynch to read the lines. He was fantastic. He did it as many times as, as we needed him to. Um, does he do a couple takes first and then ask for direction or how does that how did that go? I down? think we just dove dove right in. Uh-huh. He do one he did one and then we'd we'd adjust. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty great. And he was kind. Incredibly kind. Yeah. Just sweet and lovely and gracious and friendly and inquisitive. Yeah. So te- so we got the Pete and Pete sketch coming up. What are some things people should be looking forward to in this new season? Oh, man. We've got some good bitch pudding coming back. Oh, what else? Oh, there's a great Venom sketch. The Tom Hardy Venom yeah. with Chris Pine as Tom, Tom Hardy and Venom. Um, we've got, uh, oh, speaking of Chris Pine, we've got a great Captain Kirk sketch coming up, um, that may or may not feature him as Captain Kirk. Um, what else? Some great musical stuff. Uh, there's Godzilla, the musical. We've got, uh, a lot of, um, oh. It's that show about dystopia where where uh, the women are all enslaved to make oh, babies. Handmaids. Handmaids. Yeah. We've got a lot of Handmaid's Tale yeah. sketches. Do you find things rising <laughs> to the zeitgeist each year? Yeah, uh, for sure. Pushed out through your show? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we had so many Handmaid's Tale sketches huh. early on in the season. Is your show is a, uh, some some sort of a reflection on current events. Yeah. In a weird yeah. way. Yeah. What do you watch? What do you watch or listen to? Um, Turn us on to some stuff. Well, let's see. What do I watch? People, people always find my my taste in television odd. Um, I like um, I like a lot of different things. I like Ghost Adventures. Yeah, with Zach Baggins. I've tried so hard to write Ghost Adventures sketches, and it's impossible to parody that show. Huh. Uh, I like. Um, oh God, what did I just? Oh, I love The Boys. Boys was great. Do you feel like whenever you're consuming content, whenever you're watching TV or what, do you always feel like you have to have a take? Do you feel um, in the back of your mind? Not really. I mean, it's – I don't watch as much television as some people do here. Uh-huh. I'm specifically referring to Matt Senreich because I don't know how he watches – he literally watches every show on television. I don't know how he does it. He was telling me all his different platforms that he has. Yeah. Netflix, Hulu. I always picture – there's like a there's got to be a television on every inch of wall space in his house, and they're all tuned to different things. And he'll look over and he'll see something, and he'll look over to the left and see something else, and yeah. look up and see. But um, I don't know. I watch a lot of weird old stuff too. Like I just rewatched all of The Sopranos. There's a there's a game show from the 70s 
that's on uh, Amazon has it on their Buzzer TV, which is where I originally saw it. But it's called Tattle Tales. Yeah. I don't know if you know that. I remember show. Tattle Tales. Yeah, sure. It's Bert, Bert Convy. Bert Convy. And it's a panel of three celebrity couples. Uh-huh. All talking about basically their sex lives in in veiled tones, and it's it's incredibly uncomfortable, and it's also a fascinating historical document because you'll have these, you know, everybody's on there promoting something, and um, everything like there'll be William Shatner and whoever his wife was in 1974. <laughs> And uh, Phyllis Diller and her husband. And then you'll have, like, um, there was an actor named Scoey Mitchell. And oh, I can't remember his wife's name. Really, and like, watching this and going, I don't know who this person is. And then going and, and looking them up and finding out about their lives. And um, I don't know. It's just it's just really fascinating to, to watch. Tattletales sketch Robot Chicken? No, I've tried. Have you? I, uh, haven't, haven't been able to crack one. It's really hard to crack uh, the room on voting for something um, that they don't even, don't have even a vague idea about, yeah. or that takes as long as I just took to describe uh-huh. tattletales yeah. to you um, to describe. <laughs> it's niche. There's an 18 year old out there who's who's thinking about going to film school. What would you advise them to do to to follow your path? Which sounds like a a really fun path. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that. Looking I'm all, back, yeah, I mean, I, be lucky. My go-to on this is um, in Steven Soderbergh's book "Sex Lies and Videotape" about the making of "Sex Lies and Videotape" and all the tribulations of getting that movie to the screen. Yeah. Um, there was a formula in there that I just latched onto. Maybe I just latched onto it because. I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be, and I don't, I don't know. But um, and the formula is talent plus perseverance equals luck. And I always thought it was cute, and now I just think it's brilliant because it it describes everybody I know in this business who's successful. It's yes, you have to have some talent, and you have to have way more drive than your friends who want to go into the banking sector or. Th- the legal sector or what maybe not more but you have to have a massive amount of passion for this type of work um and then you have to meet the right people at the right time Mm -hmm. you know i mean literally every every um signpost along my career has been because i met somebody through a fluke um but while pursuing what I've always been pursuing, and that was writing and directing. So, um, so yeah, I guess it's you know just just be prepared and don't be an asshole. That's my other. That's yeah, my other piece of advice. Don't be an asshole. Be helpful, but yeah, don't don't be an asshole is is not bad. I mean, this town is littered with people who who you know had a burst of notoriety and then vanished, and usually you poke around. You hear the stories and, you know, it's not that they just weren't talented anymore. It's that, you know, nobody liked working with them. Pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, be lucky and don't be an asshole. That's my advice to the world. Tom Shepard, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.
Visit adultswim.com slash podcast for links to some of the things Tom and I were just talking about. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email, adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Dave Bonowitz and Christina Loringer for editing and producing these podcasts. Thanks also to Maggie Cannon for arranging everything. Thank you for listening.